head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one, as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray to, unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Amen. So we'll end there. Uh, that relevant portion. And just to review some of the major highlight points that we've been dealing with along the way, uh, sought to emphasize at the very beginning the, uh, against the argument that says that what Paul is talking about here in these verses is simply a cultural phenomenon unique to Corinth. And we object to that uh, based entirely on the context of what Paul is talking about. And so if you go all the way back to chapter 7 and verse number 1, Paul begins there uh, answering questions that the Corinthian church had sent to Paul. And so Paul deals and addresses those questions. And the assumption, and it's a very reasonable and logical assumption, that Paul is answering a series of questions as he deals with a series of topics. So chapter 7 is the subject of marriage. And then chapter 8, all the way through to the first verse of chapter 11, deals with the subject of Christian liberty. Then he deals with the subject of head coverings in this that we've read. Then he deals with the subject of the Lord's table in the final part of chapter 11. In chapter 12, he deals with the subject of spiritual gifts. In chapter 13, he deals specifically with the gift of love. And then in chapter 14, more spiritual gifts, but uh, the gift of prophecy and speaking in tongues. And then he wraps everything up at the end of chapter 14, if you will, in some ways just a summary of the whole dealing with orderly conduct during the worship of God's people. And so the whole context deals with matters related to the church at large, not only Corinth, but the body of Christ, the church. And nothing discussed here is something that is uniquely local to Corinth. Also sought to emphasize that 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is not a passage that only deals with the fact that women should wear head coverings during public worship. 
that's not exclusive to the passage, because it says just as much to men that men are not to wear a head covering during public worship. Nobody ever focuses on that point, but the passage does directly teach that point. Men are not to wear head coverings during worship. Women are, but men are not. And Paul gives the reasons for those. And so, as we do a big outline of the passage, we can drill down to some far more specific points, but a big outline is the teaching of the passage in verses 3 to 6, and then we have spiritual reasons for what Paul has taught in verses 7 to 12, and that's where we were last week, and then he finishes verses 13 to 15 with natural reasons uh, to defend the teaching that he has. And so last week we were looking really at verses 7, 8, and 9 at the reasons why men should have their heads uncovered. And the reasons given, so in verse 7, the first reason is because man, or Adam, uh, but man was created in the image of God. Uh, He is the image and glory of God. And so for that reason, he is not to have his head covered. The second reason is that man came first in God's creation and was specifically given dominion over the earth. Man has a unique place uh, in God's creation. The third reason is the fact that the man was not created to serve the woman, but the opposite is the case, and we'll we'll deal with that more here in, in just a moment. But the point of all that Paul has said here in these spiritual reasons is that the man in public worship must assume the role of authority that God has given to him. And so then we came and just very briefly started uh, the point of reasons why a woman should have her head covered. And so Paul actually gives those reasons in these same verses, 7, 8, and 9. It's just each of those verses has two parts, and so we have to understand both of the parts. And so last week we focused on the, the male part, the husband part, the man part, and today we focus on the woman part or the wife part. And I have acknowledged along the way, uh, if you have a version other than the King James that you're reading, uh, many of the other versions, uh, instead of translating it as man and woman, translate husband and wife. Um, And there is some consistency there in some of the other translations, and rightly so, because it is the Greek word that is used, the words for husbands and wives. And so last week we did very briefly um, just touch on the question that legitimately arises, what about a single woman, a woman who is not a wife? Uh, So a woman who is disconnected in some way from her parents' authority, um, whether her parents have died and and she is an an adult woman, um, but not a wife, what responsibility does she have to wear a head covering? We also uh, touch very briefly on the question of our daughters, who are not wives, uh, but are, you know, undeniably, biblically under their father's spiritual authority. What responsibility do they have to wear head coverings? And, when, and if they should, then when should they start? Um, 
Do they start when they begin to understand? And so are we going to kind of play with an age of accountability kind of question? Um, some have offered that when a young girl is converted, she ought to begin to wear a head covering. I don't take that view um, because the laws of God do not, do not apply only to the converted. God's laws and God's commandments apply to all human beings breathing on planet Earth. Whether they submit to those rules, whether they acknowledge those rules, that is irrelevant. Um, but the laws of God apply to all. And so those that identify as part of a covenant community of God's people, and so without going down the baptism rabbit trail, especially those of us who would practice infant baptism, then that child has been baptized into the visible covenant community of God's people. They, according to our catechism answer, are partakers of the benefits of that covenant community. And so partaking of the benefits of that covenant community, then they are under the regulations of that covenant community as well. And so that's a brief answer to that, perhaps. But let's get into verse 7 as to the reasons why a woman should have her head covered. And so the, the reason I go back to verse 7 is because of verse 10. And so you see how verse 10 begins, for this cause. Or another way just to read that is, because of these reasons ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. And so we dealt last week with that word power. Um, almost all of the other translations, besides the King James, add the word symbol in there. Symbol of, and they translate the word power as authority, because it's, it's the Greek word exousia, uh, which does mean power, but really carries with it more of the idea of authority. And so they just translate it that way, for this cause ought the woman to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And so what is the cause? The cause goes back to chapter, I'm sorry, verse number 7, uh, verses 7, 8, and 9. So the first reason is because the woman is the glory of man. Now, we, we're not, this isn't anthropology, um, but we have to, deal with this, and I just have to deal with it briefly because we've got a lot to go on here. But the point that Paul is making here is that man was created in the image and glory of God, and the woman was created to be the crown and the glory of her husband. Now, this is another argument. This is a, a beside-the-point rabbit trail point. This is another argument against singleness and against a desire for singleness. It is not God's plan and purpose for young men and young women to remain single. That, that's not in God's original plan of how he worked it out. God ordained and God created the natural order of things. He created a woman for a man and, and in God's providence to bring those two things together. And it is right, natural, holy, and good for young men and young women to desire to find that one that God has created for them, that mate for life, that, that help meet. 
And so the woman was created, it says in verse 7, as the glory of the man. She is the crown and glory of man. So man reflects the glory of God as the ruler of all things, but the woman is a reflection of the glory of the man. And so for a man to be in public worship with his head covered is to rob God of his glory because the man represents the glory of God. And so to cover up that glory would be a wrong thing to do. But the woman in public worship, since she represents the glory of the man, is to cover that glory because man's glory is not to be exalted in the presence of God. Only God is to be exalted. Only God is to be worshipped. Only God uh, is to have that, that position and that, um, that recognition of glory. And so the symbolism is for a woman to be uncovered is for her to be in worship displaying the glory of man, which man's glory is not to be exalted. And so by covering her head, what she is doing is she is acknowledging and showing her submission to that authority that God has placed over her. The second reason in verse 8, so it says, for the man is not of the woman, um, meaning the man is not from the woman, but the woman is from the man. And what Paul means to say here is that when God created the woman, he created Eve from Adam. Adam was not created from Eve. Adam was created first from the dust of the ground, and God formed his body. He was laying there, a corpse of a, of a human being, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. And then Adam was given a responsibility to name all the animals. He does so, and he notices that there are two of all of them, but there's not another one of him. And God said it's not good for the man to be alone. None of the other animals were alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And so God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and the woman was created from the man. God took a rib and fashioned the woman, and there you have it. And so the husband, the man, has authority over his wife, the woman, because of that order of creation. And then we come to verse 9. Neither was the man created for the woman. So if we can put a word in here to help our understanding, neither was the man created for the benefit of the woman, but the woman was created for the benefit of the man. That's what Paul's saying in verse number 9. Let me read you a quotation. I think this has summarized things uh, as well as they can be said. This is uh, from an older commentator named Albert Barnes. Let me read this, what he says here. He says, this is a simple statement of what is expressed in Genesis. The woman was made for the comfort and happiness of the man, not to be a slave, but a helpmeet, not to be the minister of his pleasures, but to be his aid and comforter in life, 
not to be regarded as of inferior nature and rank, but to be his friend, to divide his sorrows, and to multiply and extend his joys, yet still to be in a station subordinate to him. He is to be the head, the ruler, the presider in the family circle, and she was created to aid him in his duties, to comfort him in his afflictions, to partake of him in his pleasures. Her rank is therefore honorable, though it is subordinate. It is in some respects the more honorable, because it is subordinate and her happiness is dependent on him. She has the higher claim to his protection and his tender care. The whole of Paul's idea here is her situation and rank as subordinate should be recognized by her at all times, and that in his presence it was proper that she should wear the usual symbol of modesty and subordination, that being the veil or the, the head covering. Right? So this is, a, this is an old commentator uh, that is recognizing the facts of this particular passage that the woman is created for man's benefit. She is subordinate to him. And remember, the whole argument is based on this doctrine of headship, all the way back to verse 3, as Paul begins the whole thing, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And so we have this hierarchy of subordination. And so it is a sign of submission. Now, um, very quickly, verse 10, what about these angels? She's to have the symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I'm not going to spend a long time here because, frankly, I have no earthly idea what it means. And if you go home and read commentators, you're going to find, no joke, they say the same thing. Um, it's the same Albert Barnes. Was it him? I think it was Albert Barnes. He said, this is one of the few places of Scripture that is completely inexplicable. Right, that's what he said. I have no idea. And you read the rest of the commentators, and the ones that are honest, the ones that aren't just proud and pompous, the ones that are honest, they, they just acknowledge we, we really have no idea. There are three main views. I'll give them to you quickly. I really don't like any of them. I, I, all of them, when you, hear, when, I, when you hear what I'm about to say, all of them are going to be things that you're like, yeah, okay, I kind of see that. But at the same time, you're going to be like, nah, I mean, that's probably not it. Okay, so these are the three dominant views. So the angels. Some take it as demons, bad angels. And so the idea here is that in public worship, with all these women uncovered being disobedient, these bad angels, these fallen angels, mock the people of God that you would have the audacity to come in the presence of a holy God in your own pride and arrogance, your own disobedience, in a way that's unsubmissive. And it's, it's, it's a mockery that these angels do. They mock the, the people of God for being so audacious in the presence of God. So that's one view. The other view, instead of demons, bad angels, real angels, like God's angels, his messengers, and so we do know from Scripture that the angels concerning salvation desire to look into these things. We know from Scripture that angels are present in the worship of God. And so because the angels of heaven 
cover themselves in the presence of God. And so the easy passage to point to is Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, was full of smoke, and there were these angels, and they had six wings, and with these wings, they covered themselves. And so, because the angels humble and submit themselves in the presence of God, then those that are to humble and submit themselves in the presence of God also must do so. The angels do it, and so women ought to um, be in that same place of submission. So that's, that's the other view. The third one, and this is probably the more stretch, you remember in the letter to the seven churches, um, he wrote to the angel, to the angel of the church of whatever city, right? And we understand that angel to be uh, something that represents the pastor of that church. And so, again, you know, this is probably the weakest one. So you're to have this symbol of authority over your head because of your pastor. Um, that, that one seems the weakest to me. Um, if I had to pick one, I would go with option two um, because the angels, we see quite consistently through Scripture, the angels humbling and submitting themselves in the presence of God, crying, holy, 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 and, and this imagery of covering themselves uh, in an act of humility and submission. To me, that makes the most sense. And so if I had to pick one to fall on, that's where I would go. Um, but I'm very happy to admit, um, no idea other than that. Those, that, that would be my best option. Um, and, and I've not really read anything outside of those three. Th- those seem to be uh, the three views that are dominant. But lest you think that Paul is calling women um, a man's doormat, verses 11 and 12, he makes this caveat kind of statement, almost, almost a parenthetical caveat kind of statement, that nevertheless, the man, is, the man can't exist without the woman, because had it not been for Eve, nobody else would have ever been born. And so there would have been no more men if it weren't for women. And the woman is not without the man, because a woman can't give birth by herself. You have to have both men and women. And in the Lord, as he ends there in verse 11, in the Lord, in the sight of God, men and women are equal as far as sinful. It's the same plan of salvation for men and women. It's the same work of redemption. It's the same regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, etc., that is required. And so women are not inferior in that way. It's simply a matter of hierarchy and subordination, not one of inferiority. And so in three minutes, we're going to deal with the rest of it. So verse 14, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him. So just, I'll, I'll just summarize this. And if you have more questions about it, I'm very happy um, to talk to you about it later. This really might be worthy of coming back to next week because this is one of the major objections. So maybe we will address this next week before we start something new. But So Paul's line of argument here is appealing to nature. Does not nature itself teach you? Let me just summarize it this way. There's a difference between men and women. Men are not women, and women are not men. And God has created them differently on purpose. 
He's created them to look differently on purpose. And so he talks about this thing with hair. Now, one of the things you have to know is that in Greek, there are two different words for hair. So one of the Greek words is the word thrix. Okay, so on my arm here, I have thrix. So each individual one of these is a thrix. This single hair here is a thrix. These are thrixes, thrixi, and I have thrix on top. Okay? Now, how long is my thrix? That's absolutely not the point. And people get messed up here because this is this not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. The word hair that's used there in verse 14, also in verse 15, is not the word thrix. It's a different word. It's the word come. Now, we get our English word, you know, to comb your hair. If you just wake up in the morning and you do nothing, you still have a come. You just have a messy one. And so a come is a word really that indicates something that we would call a hairstyle. Okay, so I have, I think undeniably, a men's haircut, right? This is a man's haircut. Now, fair enough, there is an aspect of cultural fluidity in this part of it. I don't want that to be taken the wrong way. You know, we don't know other than pictures that were painted hundreds of years after um, what the hairstyle was of ancient, ancient Near East, you know, Jewish men. We have an idea. Um, the quintessential painting picture of Jesus, he has long hair, right? Never saw the guy. Right? I, mean, I don't mean that irreverently, but we don't know. Right? We, we don't know, other than you know, what historians have, have given descriptions of some, whatever. So th- the point here is a hair style. And so if we want to get hung up on long, right? so some people say you know, it's, it's sinful to men to have long hair. Okay, well, fine. Get your ruler and tell me when short becomes long. Well, is two inches of hair long? Like, Matthew's hair is longer than my hair. Nolan's hair is longer than my hair. But has it reached the point where it's long? Because it's not as long as Maggie's hair. Right? Maggie's hair is longer. So when does short become long? And then if it's a shame for a woman to have short hair... When does long become short? You know, what, what are we going to do? We, we have a church council and say, okay, six inches is our cutoff. So if a man's hair goes past six inches, and so get your ruler out and measure each individual one, if it goes past six inches, he's in sin. If a woman's hair goes under six inches, then she's in sin. Well, that's absurd. And, and you, all, you all know that that's absurd. It's ridiculous, right? But it's absurd and it's ridiculous because it's not the point at all. The point is, men and women look differently. And so, just really to get to 
the, the summary point of it all, the natural order of things is that a woman's hairstyle is something that very easily and visually sets her apart from men. To put it very plainly, her hair makes her look different. And so this is an illustration from nature to illustrate the point that Paul has made in worship. He's not giving us the doctrine of cosmetology, right? This is not what Paul is talking about. This is not a cosmetology lesson from the Bible. It is an illustration of the point that he's already made about the fact that men and women are different. And in worship, men and women have different roles. Men and women have different responsibilities before God. And so in a place of public worship, her head covering makes her look different. It sets her apart from the man, from men. She's visually, from a distance, different than a man. You can be sitting in, you can be standing in the back and not see anyone's face and not see anyone's body. And you can tell who are the men and who are the women from the back because you can see this person has a covering, this person does not have a covering. It's simply an illustration to illustrate the point. Men and women are different, men and women are to look different. And so the conclusion, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now some people have come to verse 16 and say, well, if you haven't argued about this, well, don't worry about it because none of the churches do this. I mean, that, that doesn't even make sense, right? That, why would you, why would you even talk about it if none of the churches do this? this, this that argument doesn't make sense. And so the contentious is, if you want to argue against the practice of the church, arguing against church leadership and church authority is not a practice in the church of God. We don't argue against the lawful authority that God has placed over us in the body of Christ. We submit to that. We don't have a custom of arguing in church. None of the churches do. And so Paul settles that matter um, with, with those words. So um, one other very quick thing. Some want to say from verse number 15 that a woman's hair is her head covering. Well, that doesn't make sense. Because if that's what Paul means to say, then it would be necessary for all of us men to shave our head. We would not be allowed to have hair. Because if hair is sufficient for a woman's head covering, then it stands to reason that hair would then naturally, by default, be a man's head covering, and a man's not supposed to have one. And so that's why we emphasize it is, from verse 10, a symbol of authority. It is something visual, different than a collection of thricks um, or a particular kome that is there. It is a, a visible, substantive thing on the head, whether it be doily, band, 
sombrero, right? You pick what you want. Please don't wear sombreros because you can't ever go to Northern Ireland. Bring you a step stool because those women wear these massive things. And if you get sit in the wrong place, you can't see a thing. You just have this sombrero in front of you and you can't see. Um, and, you know, we also, it's not a fashion statement, right? So um, Lydia has on a blue dress, blue hat. Maggie has on a white shirt, white hat, right? She's not wearing hot pink, right? Because that would be immodest. That would draw attention to her in a way that's flamboyant and, and wrong and, and unnecessary. And so this is my opinion, fair enough. But, you know, the massive sombrero with the big feathers sticking out of it and all that, you really cross over the line into what now becomes immodest because it does draw attention to you so that after church, dude, did you see so-and-so's hat, right? That's not the point of wearing the thing. It's not, we're not, it's not a fashion show. It's not something to, to uh, gawk at. Um, it is simple by design. Simple by design. Um, because it is a show of submission and humility. That's, that's the whole point of it all, is that. So we'll stop there. We've gone past time here. Um, but nobody's beating the door down, so we're okay. But if you have questions about this, I'm happy to talk about it some more. If you have more questions that you want me to spend more time with something specific next week, we can do that. Um, otherwise, we're, we're moving on. So I'll be here next Sunday. The Sunday after that, we'll be gone for Lydia's uh, niece's wedding up in New Hampshire. So we won't be here. Pastor Kimbrough will do Sunday school that day. Uh, then we'll come back. So let's pray. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We freely acknowledge that we've been dealing with a passage that is quite difficult for us to understand in some ways, uh, but yet we, we want to take a, a plain, straightforward, uh, simple reading and meaning of what you have communicated to us. Uh, we know that by your Spirit you are not trying to be confusing, and we have to acknowledge that it's our own sinfulness that would in any way make us misunderstand what you have said. Uh, and so we have to acknowledge that the problem is not with your communication, but it's with our understanding. And so since that's the problem, we pray that you would help our understanding. Uh, give us clarity uh, and humility as we seek to understand what you have said. We pray for Pastor Kimbrose he preaches. Fill him with your spirit for the message this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.